Would you take God's Word tonight, please, and open to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 6. We are studying this uh, wonderful pastoral epistle. And tonight we come to chapter 6, and we're going to look at verse 13 to verse 16. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, look at verse 13. I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate, witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light, which no man can approach unto, whom no man has seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. Recently, the Christian social media has kind of gone wild, um, especially this past week. And the reason for that is because a very popular, nationally known pastor and radio preacher, Alistair Begg, made some controversial comments. Maybe you've heard about him. He gave counsel to a grandmother who asked him, should she attend the wedding of her transgender um, granddaughter or grandson? I, I got confused over which one that was. And this is a question that is often asked to pastors. Should Christians attend an LGBTQ wedding. And according to Alistair Begg, Christians should attend a wedding and they should bring a gift. He said, we don't want the world to think uh, that Christians are judgmental or that we are unloving. And uh, when he was asked to clarify his statements or perhaps maybe admit that he had given bad counsel to that grandmother and maybe retra retract his statement, change his counsel, uh, rather than do any of that, he refused to admit that the council was wrong, and in fact, he doubled down on his comment and said that, you know, what he said was the absolute right thing. Now, Alistair Begg has been a faithful preacher of the Word for decades. He's a wonderful pastor, and he's orthodox in his theology, a great preacher, greater than I and many others. But I believe that here he has compromised. I don't believe that believers should go to a homosexual or transgender wedding for several reasons. First of all, number one, there's no such thing as a homosexual or transgender wedding. That's not a wedding. The Bible says very specifically what a wedding is. It is between a man and a woman, male and female. The Bible makes that very clear in the book of Genesis. And it's only a wedding because God is the one who unites them together. And so that's not really a wedding, first of all. The Bible makes that unmistakably clear. Anything else is a lie and a falsehood. It doesn't matter what the government says. It doesn't matter what the state says. It only matters what God says. And when the state contradicts the Word of God, we stand firmly on the Scripture. And also, by attending a wedding, where you're, what you're basically doing is you're affirming that whole event. How can a Christian give their blessing to something that is an abomination to Almighty God? How can you bless that when God does not, when God um, it is an offense in his sight? And also by attempting to demonstrate your love to them by doing something like that, you're actually doing the exact opposite. You're not showing love there. Um, what is love? Well, the Bible tells us in 2 John verse 6, this is love that we walk after his commandments. It's never loving to affirm someone or encourage someone that is walking 
against the word of God. Love sometimes is tough, and sometimes we have to speak truth graciously, lovingly, but we still have to speak truth that will be offensive. We are not trying to be offensive, but we have to stand firmly on the truth of God's word. And so the most loving thing you can do to a person who's living in sin is for you yourself to walk in truth and to speak truth to them. By attending something like that, you are affirming a lie and you're not walking in the truth. And that, to me, is a form of hatred. Why would you want to encourage someone in a life that is a lie, that is a sin against Almighty God? That is not loving. And also, a wedding is supposed to be a joyous event. How can you rejoice when God's Word is being rejected? How can you be joyous when the divine order that God established is being perverted? There's no way you can have joy over that if you're a believer. Let me tell you something, beloved. Compromise with the world never wins the world. If you think you're going to win the world to Christ by compromising truth, you'll never get that accomplished. Never do what is offensive to God to appear winsome to man. Now, some of you know that I have a prodigal son. I have four children. Three of them are believers. I have one son who is living in sin and living in error, and we, my wife and I, we pray over him every day of our life. Um, we constantly are asking God to bring repentance to his heart. The worst thing I could ever do for him is to affirm uh, that kind of a life. That's the worst thing I could ever do, is in any way give affirmation to that kind of sin or that kind of life. Let me tell you what I am. I'm the prodigal son's father waiting at the doorpost, looking over the horizon, waiting for God to bring my son home, waiting for God to bring repentance to his heart. You think I want to offend the only God that can really change his heart by compromising with the world? I don't mind offending him, and I don't mind offending the world, but I'm not going to offend God because God is the only one that can change his heart. God is the only one that can bring truth in his life. And so, again, it's, it's not easy to live a life without compromise in today's world because when you take a stand like this, you're going to be called unloving. You're going to be called a, a hate monger when actually the opposite is true. But Christian people should be marked by an uncompromising life. If we waffle when the pressure's on, it hurts our witness, and people will shrug off the gospel message, the great message that we stand for. And that's especially true of Christian leaders. When you compromise, that your message is no longer effective. If we fudge on integrity, the enemy will use that to dilute the power of the gospel that we proclaim. And so the name of the game when it comes to ministry and preaching the word is integrity. It's living a life without compromise. For the sake of Christ who gave his life for his church, we who preach the word of God must be uncompromising men and men of integrity. We do not compromise on the truth. But that puts pastors in a bind because like most people, pastors like people and they like to be liked. Believe it or not, I like to be liked. But I'm not going to, you know, sell the truth or prostitute the truth or compromise the truth in order to be liked by people of the world or even sometimes people in the church. That's not what we will do. You learn early in ministry that you can't please everyone. I know that there are preachers out there that attempt to play politician. They try to make 
you know, everyone think that they, are, they agree with them or that they try to be on everyone's side, but that's just simply impossible. You're going to have to take your stand on the truth. Now, with all that in mind, Timothy was feeling the pressure to compromise. To compromise. Timothy and his personality was timid. He was peace-loving by nature. But he had to stand strongly against the false teachers and the false teaching that was rising up in Ephesus. It would have been easy for him to just, you know, water down the gospel and the essential truth in the name of peace and in the name of unity. But Paul is exhorting Timothy, don't do that. He exhorted him in chapter 1 to fight the good fight of faith. And after doing that, now here in chapter 6, he reminds him of the good confession he made at his baptism, and he gives him a solemn charge to maintain his integrity and ministry above all else, even if it means persecution, and even if it means death, you maintain your integrity in ministry. Look at verse 13. I give thee charge. Notice that strong charge here. The word charge is an order passed down. The word is sometimes translated order or command. Uh, Notice verse 14 where it says that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. The question is, what does Paul mean by the commandment? And according to the context, the commandment here is to be understood as the entire revealed word of God. It is the faith. It is the truth of Scripture. What God has revealed to us in propositional truth in the 66 books of the Bible, that is the commandment. That is what we are to keep. And the word keep there, if you look at that, that word means to guard. Not only is Timothy to proclaim the truth, he is to guard the truth. He is to protect it diligently. Several times Paul gave this charge. We already noted that he he did it in chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 18, notice where it says, this charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went on before thee, that thou mightest Um, war, a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. And so he gives a charge there to Timothy. Look in chapter 6. Look down in verse number 20. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. Avoid profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so called. And so Paul was making a charge that Timothy was to proclaim the truth without compromise. He was to keep the truth. And you can only do that through the help of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit. But we need to guard the truth. Now, what Paul does here in these few verses is he gives three motivating factors to help Timothy guard the truth. Three motivations for living a life without compromise. And here's the first one, number one, an awareness of God's presence. An awareness of God's presence. Look at verse 13. I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate, witnessed a good confession. Notice Paul calls upon two witnesses when he gives this charge to Timothy. First is God the Father. Paul makes this charge in the sight of God the Father. And this reminds us that we live our lives in the sight of God. That is the idea. We are to live our lives to please him. We're not men pleasers, but rather we seek to please God. 
That is the ultimate goal of the Christian life. People have asked me, what's the big idea of the Christian life? You know, what's the big ultimate goal of the Christian life? And people have asked me this, um, want to know what is the ultimate thing? What is the overarching thing for the believer, the goal of the Christian? And many theologians have answered this phrase. This actually goes all the way back to the time of the Reformation. They answered that question with a phrase, a Latin phrase, quorum dio. Have you ever heard of that phrase? Quorum dio. What does that mean? Quorum dio is a Latin phrase. And, um, you know, we sing a song around Christmas time, in excelsis, gloria in excelsis deo. What does that mean? Gloria is just Latin for glory to, and to God. In excelsis is in the highest. So glory in the highest deo to God. And so when we talk about quorum deo, quorum is the Latin for in the presence of Deo, in the presence of God. And so this phrase literally refers to something that takes place before the face of or in the presence of God. So to live a life quorum Deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, and for the glory of God. That captures the essence of the Christian life. In other words, we have to realize that anything and everything we do, we do it under the gaze of Almighty God. And so, therefore, we seek to please Him. He's the one that we try to glorify. He's the one that we want to make happy. On Wednesday night, we uh, dealt with Psalm 139, which is a great psalm about the, uh, the omnipresence of God. You can't escape Him. You can't escape His presence there's no place so remote that we escape the penetrating gaze of Almighty God. And so to live quorum Deo involves recognizing that there's no goal higher than that of honoring God. Our lives are to be living sacrifices uh, unto the Lord. Um, we live all of our life, a quorum Deo life, in the, uh, in a, uh, as, a, as a way of pleasing God and also living a life of absolute integrity. One great theologian wrote, it is a life that is open before God. It is a life in which all that is done is done to the Lord. It is a life lived by principle, not expediency, by humility before God, not defiance. It is a life lived under the tutelage of conscience that is held captive by the Word of God. So we live with the awareness of God's presence. And this is what Paul's reminding Timothy about Paul says, I'm giving you this charge in the presence of Almighty God. In other words, he is the one that you must please. He is the one that you must honor. And living that kind of a life begins really on the inside because God knows our heart. He knows our thoughts. And you've heard me say it before. If you don't win the battle on the inside, you don't win the battle. We have to bring all of our thoughts into captivity to Jesus Christ. And where pleasing God starts is how we think and our own uh, heart. But notice what else Paul says in verse 13. I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things. What is that? Who quickeneth. The word quicken here, the Greek word zugoneo, which actually means to give life to. God alone is the one who gives life. God alone is the one who preserves it until all of his sovereign purposes are accomplished. It can also refer to God's power to raise from the dead. And Paul's point is that God is in charge of all of life. And God can give Timothy the ability, the conviction to stand for truth, even if it means death, 
That's okay. God's sovereign over all of that. And if we have to die for our stand for truth or for the faith, that's okay. God will raise us up. He is the God of life, and he is the God of death. If evil men threaten to kill Timothy, God will either preserve him and continue to give him life, or God will give him the strength to be faithful unto death. But not only is God the Father one of the witnesses, but also Jesus Christ. Look again in verse 13. And before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession. Jesus is the supreme earthly example of an uncompromising life. And Paul points to an event in the life of Christ that demonstrates that very thing. And that's when he stood trial before Pontius Pilate. And during that whole episode, Jesus remained faithful to the truth of the Word of God. Even during his arrest and that kangaroo court called a trial, when he was, you know, made to stand before judges four in the morning, how many, how many know of any trials that happened that early in the morning? Unless you're, unless you're trying to get a guy, you know, executed. The whole trial is a farce. And yet Jesus, during that whole thing, spoke the truth and trusted in God to deliver him in life and in death. 1 Peter 2, 21, For even hereunto are you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. And when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. When Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus fearlessly replied, It is as you say. Only the Lord, our Lord, stood boldly, his ground, spoke the truth, and entrusted his life to Almighty God. And Paul points to Jesus and that whole episode in his life and says, Timothy, this is the example that you are to follow. Remember Christ who bore witness even through his suffering and did not shrink from preaching God's word, and he pleased the Father in all that he did. That is the example that we have, and that is the example that we must follow. I read about a pastor in India who felt the call of God to go to the second most sacred site for a Hindu pilgrimage and plant a church there in that spot. His wife chose to go with him. They took along their children. Even though the the last missionary who tried to live there had been murdered and he was beheaded and his head was placed in a Hindu temple. But he went and he lived there and he lived in poverty, filthy conditions with no human means of support. And he had been there for 15 years, and he had been beaten many times. He'd been threatened with being skinned and thrown into the sea. His oldest son had been beaten and threatened with crucifixion for preaching. And the schools he he built for pastors, they were burned to the ground. But he just built other schools. He just continued on, and he persevered. He was willing to lay down his life for the cause of Christ. That kind of courage comes only from someone who lives his life understanding the charge that he's doing it in the presence of Almighty God and being faithful to Jesus Christ. Most of us don't know that kind of hardship. I sure don't. I hear of a lot of American pastors talking about the stress of ministry. I don't deny that there are pressures. And, you know, sometimes things don't always go your way. 
you know, I, I pastored one church where, you know, 100 people met off campus trying to figure out how to get rid of me. All they had to do was ask me. I could have told them. No, I'm just kidding. They were after my job. At least they weren't after my life. At least I don't think so. But honestly, I've never had to deal with persecution on the level of many pastors in other parts of the world that live under the threat of death all the time. I was in India last summer and did a pastor's seminar for pastors there, about 60 pastors, all of which lived in a place where their very life was at risk because they were preaching the gospel. I've never lived under that kind of a threat. But whatever pressures you and I face to compromise our testimony to God's saving grace, we must stand firm remembering that we do this in the presence of God who gives life to all, in Christ Jesus who testified a good confession before Pontius Pilate. We need to have an awareness of God's presence. But here's the second thing. Another motivating factor to be uncompromising is an awareness of Christ's coming. Look at verse 14. That thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul urges Timothy to be faithful to the word of God without spot. That word there uh, means, you know, without fault is the idea, faultless, spotless. This is the word that's used to speak about Christ who is the spotless lamb of God. And it's only because of the blood of Christ that we can even have that kind of a blameless life because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. But we must live out practically this righteousness. That's what Paul's saying. Unrebukable, that is, he was to be completely beyond reproach. There was no legitimate accusation that was to mar his testimony. How long? How long are we to live this kind of a blameless, spotless life? until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, until the second coming. This applies to all of us. Now, for those who believe that the second coming took place in 70 AD, you're off the hook. But for those of us that believe that the appearing of Christ is still yet future, we still have to obey this until he comes. Although Christ is always present spiritually, he's not present visibly until that glorious moment when he will come again and take us to be with him. And we don't know when that's going to be. I know there are some out there, you've heard me talk about this. We're going through First Thessalonians. You know, there are some people that like to try to predict the second coming of Jesus Christ. We don't know it's, when it's going to be, but we know it will happen. It's as sure as his word. And Jesus is not a liar. We who believe in him will be caught up together to meet him in the clouds, the Bible says, and those sh- there shall we be with the Lord. Some people say, why hasn't he returned yet? He delays his coming. From your perspective, it is the delay, but God the Father already has that date set in his mind. He knows the exact moment when he will return, when he will send his son Jesus to come back and to receive his church unto himself. And so any delay is not really a delay It's all according to God's sovereign purpose and time. Look at verse 16 where it says, which in his times he shall show. God will bring about the second coming in his own sovereign predetermined time. Again, remember the disciples, they wanted to know. They asked Jesus, and Jesus said, but concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And you heard me talk about this on Sunday morning, but 
Some people, when they read that verse, they think, well, that surely can't mean that Jesus didn't know because he's God. He has to know. And Thomas Aquinas, the uh, early church theologian, came up with what he called the accommodation theory. And basically in that theory, he said, you know, Christ had to know, but the reason he didn't answer the disciples' question and tell them is because the answer would be too mysterious and they wouldn't be able to really comprehend it. But as I said before, if Jesus really did know the day of his coming and he told his disciples that he didn't know, that would make Jesus a liar. And that one lie, one sin would undo him as capable of being the redeemer So we have to take Jesus seriously when he says, not even the Son of Man knows, because in his humanity, sometimes the divine mind didn't communicate things to his human mind. That's why it says in the book of Luke that he grew in wisdom as a young man. We know there are times when the divine mind communicated with the human mind because Jesus knew things during his earthly ministry that only God could know. But that doesn't mean that every moment in his earthly ministry that the divine mind communed everything to his human mind, or that his human mind was swallowed up in the divine mind, like some people like to try to think. No, Jesus was fully man and fully God. And when he said he didn't know, he didn't know. But God the Father has set that day. And remember what we read in Acts 1 They asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Notice it's the Father. He has it in his own authority. But then he puts their focus back on what we should be doing. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, under the uttermost parts of the earth. That's what we are to be busy doing. We're not to be obsessed with when Christ is coming. We are to be obsessed with obeying him and doing his will until he comes. And part of that is to get the gospel out in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we just need to be busy. We need to be ready when he comes. But the best way to do that is just Be faithful. Be uncompromising. Share the gospel with integrity. Don't compromise with the world. And be busy about the Lord's business. I read about a 20th century Fox company that once advertised for a salesman, and they got this reply from the applicant. Listen to what he wrote. He said, I am at present selling furniture at the address below. You may judge my ability as a salesman if you will stop in to see me at any time, pretending that you are interested in buying furniture. And when you come in, you can identify me by my red hair. No relation. And I will have no way of identifying you. Such salesmanship as I exhibit during your visit, therefore, will be no more than my usual work-a-day approach and not a special effort to impress a prospective employer. Interesting. I don't know if the guy got the job, but his attitude was good, and that's the attitude that we should have as we conduct ourselves in this world. We don't know when Jesus is going to come. We know that he is coming, so we ought to live our lives without stain, without reproach, ready to meet him, an uncompromising life, knowing that he will return one day. So there has to be an, an awareness of God's presence, an awareness of Christ's coming. But here's the third thing, an awareness of God's greatness. Look at verse 15, which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, 
Now, Paul mentioned, Paul's mention of God sovereign, sovereignly fixing the time of Christ's coming leads him to an outburst of praise as he thinks about God. Now, this is not unusual for the Apostle Paul. If you read some of his writings, you'll notice how that there are times when Paul will begin to write about some specific doctrine or theology about God, and then what will happen is spontaneously he'll break out into a doxology of praise to God. You know, all theology ought to lead to doxology. All of our theology ought to cause us to praise God and, and worship God. And, and this is what Paul's doing here. Let me give you an example of that. In, in Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul is writing about God's sovereign purposes, and then he breaks forth in this praise. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompense unto him again? For of him and through him and to him are all things to be glory forever. Amen. So Paul's talking about all this theology about the sovereignty of God, and all of a sudden he just breaks forth in praise. Now that's what he's doing here. And by doing this, he's also calling upon Timothy and us to focus on God's greatness. The greatness of God should motivate us to live a life of integrity without compromise. First of all, notice what he says about God. God is blessed. Look at verse 15 again. Which in his times he shall show who is the blessed. What does it mean when it says God is blessed? This means that he's perfect and sufficient in and of himself. That all satisfaction and joy are inherent in his own nature. He did not create the, you, the universe or the human race because there was something that he lacked. You know, God wasn't there in heaven in eternity past saying, you know, oh, I'm lonely, and I, and I just want some people, so I'm going to create people because I'm lonely. No, that's not why God created. God was perfectly satisfied and fully blessed in that trinity, the Trinitarian manifestation of himself, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. In that relationship, they were blessed. There was perfect satisfaction, perfect fulfillment. God wasn't lonely. He didn't need fellowship. And that's the reason he created man. And I emphasize that because I've heard a lot of preachers say that, oh, God was lonely. And he needed someone, you know, so he created man. No, no, sorry. That's not God. This is what theology calls the aseity of God from the Latin which means being from itself. Or we could also call this the self-existence of God. God is fully satisfied and blessed in and of himself. Remember when Moses stood before the burning bush and God revealed himself, he said, I am who I am. In that, there's so much in that phrase. But part of what God meant was that God's existence is not caused by or in any way dependent on anything else. He is perfectly sufficient in and of himself. God is not from anything, through anything, or to anything. Rather, from him and through him and to him are all things. And so there's nothing that we can do that can actually add to God or add to his blessedness or add to his happiness in any way. Write down Job 22, verse 2. Can a man be profitable unto God as he that is wise may be profitable unto himself? 
Or is it any pleasure to the Almighty that thou art righteous? Or is it gain to him that thou makest thy ways perfect? Is there anything that you can do that can add to God's state of blessedness? Anything you can do to make him happier than he already is? Or more blessed than he already is? Or profitable unto him? Of course not. In Job 35, 7, it says, If thou be righteous, what giveth thou him? Or what received he of thy hand? What can you actually give or add to God? Now, let me be careful to balance that out and say that although God is independent, God is blessed, he's self-existent, yet we have to understand the balancing side of that, that God, even though he is in that state, he condescends and chooses to rejoice in us and the things that we do. We have to understand that. He doesn't need us. We need him. And yet God in his condescension, God in his grace, chooses to rejoice over us and chooses to find joy in us. But if you think you can add anything to God, you're wrong because God is blessed. He's the most blessed creature ever. And God is the source of true blessedness for us. We get our happiness. We get our blessedness from knowing him. That's the thing that we need to understand. Jesus taught in the Beatitudes, we can only know true happiness when we are rightly related to God. But then secondly, God is blessed. God alone is the sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords. Look at verse 15, which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Potentate here, the Greek word dynastis, refers to someone who has the ability to, the, the inherent ability to carry something out with all authority. God delegates authority to earthly kings as he wishes, but they are nothing in his sight. And he can dispose of the mightiest king like flicking it in off of, of, of your arm. That's how God can dispose of the, the most mighty earthly tyrant who sometimes get proud and think that they're where they are because of their own strength. Let me tell you something. If a man gets to be in a position of authority, it's because God sovereignly allowed them to be there or God put them there, you see. Remember Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 4? So filled with pride, and God warned him in a dream, and Daniel interpreted that dream. Remember he had a dream of a tree that went all the way up, the largest tree in the world. It was so big that every bird in the, in the world could build a nest in it. It was so big that every animal in the field could find shade under it. Its fruit was so much that all the animals and people could feed off of that tree. And then he sees in a dream, an angel comes down with an ax and chops that tree down. By the way, did you know that Nebuchadnezzar used to love to chop down trees? He brags about chopping down one of the cedars of Lebanon. So this, this dream had to hit home. Here's an angel that comes down, chops down the tree, and the stump is left. And Daniel gives him the interpretation. You're the, you're the tree, O king. I mean, you know, this, this world empire that you have, you're the tree. And what you need to do is you need to humble yourself before God and realize it's really God that puts you in that position, and God can take you out. But, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, he didn't get the point. So the Bible says a year later he's walking out in his palace, and he walks out to the porch, and he looks out. Babylon, which was considered one of the seven wonders of the world, and begins to brag, is not this the great Babylon that I have built by my power, my might, my majesty? 
guy's on a serious ego trip. And what happens? There's a voice from heaven that says to you, it is taken. The judgment came upon Nebuchadnezzar. And the Bible says he became insane. And he ate grass like an oxen. And his hair grew fast like eagle feathers. And his claws, his fingernails like bird's claws. And for seven years he wandered around in insanity because he did not recognize that God was the one who's in control. God is the only potentate, king of kings and lord of lords. Nebuchadnezzar liked to call himself king of kings, but there's only one king of kings, and that's God. And then finally, when God graciously restores Nebuchadnezzar to his throne after seven years, this is what Nebuchadnezzar wrote. I bless the Most High and praise and honor him who lives forever, forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what are you doing? You can't say that to God. He got the message. We as creatures can only know true blessings when we humble ourselves under the mighty sovereign hand of God. The title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that is ascribed to God the Father. Later, that will also be ascribed to Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation. It would be blasphemy for a mere creature to share this exalted title with the only sovereign of the universe. But there have been earthly kings that have tried to call themselves that. I, I was watching a documentary of Alexander the Great, conquered the world by age 30. He went to Egypt, and before going to war with Darius, the king of the Persians, he did something first. He went to a little oasis in the Egyptian desert called Siwa because there was a, an oracle there at Siwa, and he wanted to find out what this oracle had to say about him. And, of course, she told him what he wanted to hear, that he was a... A, a demigod. He was an earthly living God, and that he was a king of kings. But you know what? He wasn't. He was a mortal sinful man, and God used him for his own purposes. And then later on, he died of an alcoholic's death, unable to control his own passions. He was a sinful man. There's only one king of kings and lord of lords, and that's Jesus Christ. Only one but also God alone is immortal. Look again what it says in verse number 16. Who, hath, who only hath immortality. Immortality means free of death. He is the only uncreated self-existent, self-existent being who is not subject to death. And so proud men may exalt themselves as if they will live forever, forever. God, all he has to do is send an invisible virus or a microbe and lays the strongest men of the earth in the dust. Only God is immortal. God gives to us eternal life because we trust in Christ, but only God is immortal. And also, God dwells in unapproachable light. Again, in verse 16, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man has seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. And this refers to the splendor of God's inherent glory. He dwells in unapproachable holiness and light and glory, so much so that we in and of ourselves, we could never behold the full glory of God and live. 
Remember Moses said, Lord, I want to see your way. I want to know you. And God says, no man can see me and what? And live. You can't see my full, unadulterated glory and actually live through that. No man can do that. But he said, I'll tell you what, Moses, what I'll do is I'll pick you up, put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'll pass by, and you'll see my afterglory, but you can't see my full glory because no man can do that. Not even the angels in heaven can look upon God in his full glory. Only a few angels were privileged to do that, to walk where other angels fear to tread, to see the full manifestation of the glory of God so he dwells in unapproachable light. And that all speaks about the greatness of God and his glory. But also God is invisible in verse number 16, where it says that um, who no man has seen nor can see, God is spirit and cannot be apprehended by our finite human senses. And so here Paul is overwhelmed with who God is, and he worships him. And he says, he finishes it off by saying to him, be honor and eternal dominion or power everlasting. And so what we have to do is we have to maintain an awareness of the greatness of our God. You know why we can live a life of integrity without compromise? Because we're aware of his greatness, and he's who we represent. So you have to be aware of, first of all, you have to be aware of God's presence continually. You have to be aware of Christ's coming, and you have to be aware of God's greatness. And those are things that will motivate you and I to live a life without compromise, even when the world around us will put pressure on us to compromise, even when our feet are to the fire, and even when some difficulty might come up where we're called upon maybe to compromise or make a little concession. We can't do that because we stand on the Word of God. We keep the commandment as we are commanded to do because of these things. We do not compromise. A New York family bought a ranch out west. They intended to raise cattle. And friends came to visit the ranch. And they, uh, when they came to visit, they asked, you know, do you, does your ranch have a name? Well, said one of the cattlemen, you know, would-be cattlemen, he goes, you know, I want to I name it the Bar J. But my wife, she wants to name it Susie Q. And one son, he likes the name Flying W. And my other son, he likes the name Lazy Y. So we're calling the ranch the Bar J, Susie Q, Flying W, Lazy Y. I said, well, where are your cattle? He said, well, they all died. I said, well, why, well, why did they die? Well, because they, they couldn't take the brand, you know. The brand was too big, so they all died, you know. So the moral of the story is when you compromise to please men, you end up losing a lot more than you gain. We're not called to please men. We're called to do what is right in the sight of God. And Paul makes that very clear. We are to guard the truth, guard the truth, and walk in integrity. Let's bow for prayer together. So, Father, help us in this. We need your grace and your wisdom. Lord, we desire to represent you rightly in this world. 
And frankly, so many times, Lord, we feel the pressure of the world. We feel the pressure to compromise truth. And so, Lord, I pray that you'll help us to stand firmly, lovingly, graciously, yet firmly stand upon the Word of God. Help us to realize that we actually display love in a, in a greater way when we stand on the truth. Love is convictional. Love never departs from the truth. And, Father, there's a way that we can communicate our love and compassion and yet be faithful to the truth as well without compromise. So, Lord, help us to do that. It's not easy. It takes wisdom. It takes patience. It takes courage. So, Lord, give us that. And, Lord, may as a, as a result of that, Lord, would you honor us and would you bring true repentance to people who are in error as they see our uncompromising life, as they hear the gospel from our lips and know that the message is true because we're not willing to compromise it. Father, as a result, bring people to repentance and bring salvation. And may you be honored and glorified in all that we do. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.